The following podcast is from Doxa Church in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org. So we're working through a series on the book of 1 Corinthians. We're calling it Pretty Ugly Bride. The idea behind that being that uh, the bride of Christ, uh, the church, is the bride of Christ. And... uh, if you have any sort of background in church, you know that it's not always all that it's cracked up to be. We go into church with certain hopes and expectations, and oftentimes church kind of lets us down, or more specifically, other Christians let us down. And what, one of the things that we've been talking about is that really, that's really the history of Christianity in general. If you look back in the very beginning, they were having troubles, like even in the awesome, like, uh, miracles that were happening, thousands of people coming to Christ uh, at a time uh, the church is still like, they're fighting right off the bat because the, this, these people's like widows aren't being fed and these people's aren't, widows being, aren't being fed. You have the Apostle Paul himself who is out on a missionary journey planting churches and he and his buddy, like they start having a fight and they decide like, I, I can't be around you anymore and they split and go in different directions. So if you, but a part of a church where there's like arguments and disagreements and people like talking about you behind your back, like that's sort of like just par for the course. The church, the bride of Christ is a beautiful thing. He says that when he describes the bride, he says he's coming back for a spotless, beautiful bride. The spotless, beautiful part, though, comes from the blood of Christ that covers us in our sins. But the, the ugly part is just sort of like you and me being who you and I are and all of our messes and all our frailties and all our mess-ups. And we're working through a particularly kind of heavy part of 1 Corinthians because the, the church at Corinth, Paul had come to the city of Corinth and helped plant it. It was a big metropolitan city, a lot of fast-moving area, a lot of stuff going on, a, a high-growth area. Man, it was, a, it was a happening place to be. And he goes there and he plants his church and it's going well and he leaves and just a few years later he hears like there's some jacked up stuff going on. In fact, so jacked up that Jonathan got to cover the first five verses of chapter five last week, which was like a real treat for him. He even told you at the very beginning he didn't want to cover that section because it was about a man who had been sleeping with his father's wife. We think probably his stepmother. And Paul tells them that you're... I have already passed judgment on this man and you guys are, next time you gather together, you are to kick the man out of the church. And not only does he say that, like that would be kind of harsh in itself, but then he says you should kick him out of the church for the destruction of his flesh but the saving of his soul. That's pretty heady, heavy stuff. You guys like excited to cover that kind of stuff when you come into church? And we get to continue that, the rest of that section today. And... Um, it's a really difficult text to come to. A lot of questions, a lot of implications that come from both last week's text and this week's text. And so first of all, I just want to acknowledge that Jonathan couldn't cover everything for chapters one through five, for verses one through five, and I can't cover everything in verses six through 13 here in this setting. So I hope that you guys are gathering together in what we call C groups or small groups during the week to try to chop the stuff up, to try to deal with like the, the questions, run down the rabbit trails that are sort of obvious rabbit trails whenever you get into something like this. So that's, that's a very important thing. If you're not in a C group, you can be in one. You can see uh, a man's trying to clear jacket over here, Jason Burton. Um, Michigan won. 
congratulations. I want to be able to say that because every other time I've said Michigan lost. It's happened a lot this year. But uh, you can see him today. He's uh, heading up community groups for us right now, and he'll, he'll, be able to help you, he'll be able to help you get into a community group. I'm very excited. See, I've been up here for two weeks. I'm like, whoa, let's go. And I had a, two cups of coffee, so I'm extra. So you guys are in trouble. I'm going to try to keep us on task here today. But I, so I hope you're in a community group to chop up the text and to deal with the implications and the big questions that would come through it. And this text today that we're dealing with, um, I come to it knowing, I come to it knowing that there are a certain number of people in this room that when you leave, you will leave here today either confused or offended or convicted about the material that we're covering this morning. Because it is a confusing, offensive, convicting passage. There are dozens of different thoughts and actions that, that, that you could be convicted about. There's a dozens of different questions that you could have that could cause confuse, confusion about this passage. There's a, a lot of ways that you can be offended this morning. And I just ask you to stick with me this morning to the end. But really, the reason that you and I would come to this passage and be offended by it, and you, Kate already read it for us, it's a, it's a heady one. In fact, we'll go ahead and read it again, just uh, so we have it on the table as we know what we're talking about. He's talking to the church at Corinth. He just talked about how the man was sleeping with his, uh, his uh, father's wife, probably a stepmother, and tells that there's a way to deliver him over for the destruction of his flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. In verse six, he says, your boasting is not good. So there's some sort of boasting going on in the church here at Corinth. There's some sort of, whether we don't know what they're boasting about. They're, we don't know whether they, they're like, they've been preaching grace and so excited about, hey, your right standing before God doesn't stand upon your actions at all. So like if you are sleeping with your father's wife, who are we to judge? Like God's already covered that sin. And so every time you keep sinning, God just keeps covering it. So it's not a big deal. Or maybe there's sort of a church that maybe a lot of churches that you've been to where you knew bad stuff was going on, maybe in some of the key leaders, maybe some of the big wig leaders in the church. And like everybody knew certain sin was going on, but nobody wanted to say anything because nobody wanted to step on somebody else's toes. Nobody would want to be that guy that got into somebody else's business. Because what you do in your time and what I do on my time, that's sort of our own thing. That's sort of like the mantra of America, isn't it? Like you do your thing and I do my thing, and as long as what you're doing doesn't hurt me and what I'm doing doesn't hurt you, then we're good. And who are you to say that what I'm doing is wrong? And that sort of attitude bleeds into the church and it's not a new thing. It's not a new American thing. It's a sin thing that has bled into the church for all time. And what we're going to be talking about today, what we're going to be talking about is that it's easy to tolerate sin when we underestimate the holiness of God. It's easy to tolerate sin when you underestimate the holiness of God. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. He's talking about um, sort of the, a picture of the Jewish Passover here. We'll, uh, we'll come back to that. As you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival. Not with the, old, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. 
I wrote to you my letter, this is tough, not to associate with sexually immoral people. What does that mean? Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. So he's saying, I'm not talking about the people who aren't Christians. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. You couldn't have a job. You couldn't have customers if you own a business. But he's saying, that's not what I'm talking about. But now I, I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. Or some of your translations may, may, be, uh, may say, who a so-called brother. If he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not, not even to eat with such a one. For what, do I, what have I to do with judging outsiders? He said, I'm not judging the people who aren't believers outside the church. Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? And that's kind of interesting, right? Because don't we love to quote the, the passage where Jesus says, judge not lest you be judged? But he's saying, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. He takes care of that. And then he says, purge the evil person from among you. Woo, that's a fun one. See, the reason that you and I read that passage, that we hear that passage, and that we get offended is because we lack a proper perspective of the holiness of God. Because you and I have, how many people here have grown up in the church? And I can see your hand, you've been around the church for a long time. How many people like, uh, you've maybe been around the church for a while but you didn't grow up in the church? Anybody else? Very cool. So if you have been exposed to the American church at all, if you grew up in the American church, if you've heard TV preachers or you've visited church on Easter and Christmas, you've been around and you've been in and out, then you have most likely been fed the idea that God is all about you. That God went and he died on the cross because you are infinitely valuable. And he came in order to unite you to to him, to cleanse your sin, to, to save you because you were really awesome. And you have high intrinsic value in yourself. And that God exists to make much of you. There's a song, I, I love, I used to love the song. I, I, I will admit, I grew up in the church. I am a closet, I was a closet Michael W. Smith fan. Anybody know Smitty? I was a closet Michael W. Smith fan and he came out with a song, Above All. You guys remember it? It's a, it's a beautiful song. The only, there's only problem is the very ending of the chorus. As he says, he thought of me, he thought of you above all. And you and I have been fed the idea that you are awesome that you are amazing, that you are just kind of stuck in some sin, like you like would get stuck in a hole in your yard or get stuck in a piece of gum. And God, God came and he like pulled you out of, of your sin and, and like cleansed you up and said, hey, like, can I get you anything? And so like we view God as sort of this cosmic sort of Santa Claus is here like with this bag of goodies and we sit on his lap in prayer and we ask him for what we want and he just pours it out to us, whatever we need. Like God exists to make you happy. And so if you're sad, like go to God and he'll make you happy. If you don't have something, go to God and he'll give it to you. 
And so we sort of view salvation was all about God coming to you and making you happy because you are intrinsically awesome and of high value. And so God exists, God exists to make much of you. But the problem with that is that we've got some things backwards. Because see, before you and I existed, God existed. Before this world existed, God existed. Before the universe existed, God existed. Before the galaxies were flung out into space, he existed. And all of a sudden, when man shows up on the scene, when he creates man out of the dust of the earth, which, by the way, is where you and I come from. If you're talking about intrinsic value, you and I come from the dust of the earth. And whenever he created us out of the dust of the earth, like he didn't all of a sudden say, oh, this is what I've been waiting for. I'm going to serve man and build my life around making him happy and awesome. God didn't all of a sudden become an idolater when you were born because you were amazing. You and I were created by God and were created for God. And God is holy. Do you know what that means? That means he's separate. That's the meaning of the word holy. But that doesn't really give a, a full picture of who God is and his holiness. Have you ever stood at the edge of a cliff and you looked over the edge, that feeling that kind of rumbles in your stomach because of the awesomeness. I'm afraid of heights. So my feeling of awesomeness at that moment is multiplied by a million times than yours. Megan sent me some pictures. People are messed up. She sent me some pictures yesterday of just pictures of people who are like, maybe you've seen it floating around Facebook that like, or would tie themselves on the side of a, of a rock face and like, like sleep, like, like, would, like climb with a rock face, set up camp on the side of the rock and like sit there and read. People who are like climbing up structures, like you know there's like, this is like a thing that's going on now, like daredevils who are climbing skyscrapers, like without like being connected to anything. Teenagers, there are pictures of teenagers taking selfies at the top of a skyscraper and you see like their death just hanging down below them, below that as they take the picture. When I see those pictures, I think you guys are crazy because I have this sense whenever I get in heights so of just like, whoa. You guys ever got that feeling before? You ever walked out in the middle of the night? Look at the stars on a clear night. You got a feeling for just how small you were and how large and vast the universe is. Have you ever walked by the ocean or, God help you, been out in the middle of the ocean on a small boat and looked around you and saw nothing but water and you thought, dang, I am little. That feeling is an nth of a degree of the feeling that you would get if you came before a holy God and saw and experienced him in his holiness and his vastness and his greatness and his majesty. Have you ever met a celebrity and you got all tongue-tied around them? Like you, you went up, you're like, hey, I'm gonna be all cool, but then when you walk up to them, you're like, uh, hey, what did you do sign paper? Like you had all like things that you had planned to say to them, but you, you get a little tongue-tied when you get in their presence. If you were to stand in the presence of a holy, awesome God who created the heavens and the earth, who holds it all in the palm of his hand, who sits outside time, you would fall, you would do what every other person that we see in scripture does when they meet a holy, amazing God. You would fall down on your face and you would think 
that you're going to die or you would ask him to just kill you. That's what they do. They fall on their face and they say, just, I am undone. Isaiah, whenever he's sitting and he has a famous vision that he has and the, he sees the throne of God and he, the train of his robes fills the temple, he falls down on his face. When Joshua meets Jesus but pre-incarnate in, in the wilderness, he fall down on, falls down on his face. When an angel, not even God himself, when an angel comes and stands before Mary, she falls down on her face. When Jesus Christ, who, by the way, had been John's friend, had walked with him on the earth, he called him the disciple whom he loved. When that disciple, whom he was buddies with Jesus, he probably saw Jesus naked. He hung out with Jesus. They slept near him. He ate meals with him whenever he stands before the Jesus, robed in all his glory and majesty, he falls down on his face as if dead. He is altogether separate. That means he's other than us. There's nothing like us that we can compare him with. And that's what we often do with God. We, we start with ourselves and th we think like, God must be more awesome than me. And we, instead of saying no, we have to start with him and work back to us. And that's the reason that you and I read a passage like this. And you and I are offended at his call to holiness, at his call to purge the sin from our lives and from our midst. Because we have bought into the lie that you and I sit at the center of creation, that you and I sit at the center of life and that God is here as sort of some sort of cosmic butler to please me today. Bring me my food for today. Bring me the money that I need. Bring me a spouse. Bring me better kids. Bring me something, God. I want this. I want that. Bring it to me. Instead of viewing that God is altogether righteous and glorious, he is beautiful beyond comprehension. He is just and holy and merciful and loving, like to the nth degree. Not, not start with a, a human idea of righteousness, but he is pure and holy in himself. When you and I stand before him, when we see him, if we were to see him, if we were to get a glimpse of his holiness, we would no longer ask him to please us and to serve us. We would no longer ask him, why do you, why do you tell me not to do this anymore? Why do you tell me to purge this sin from my life and to view it as an imposition? We would fall down on our face in service to him. You see, we tend to deal with sin in three different ways, uh, maybe more, but one way is we try to work our way out of it. And that's because we have a mirror sort of turned to ourselves. I look in the mirror and I see myself and I see my faults and my frailties. I see, oh man, I wasn't nice to my wife or I have this sort of lust thing going on. I have this pornography thing going on. I have this gossip thing. I know I have this, these, these sort of issues that, are, that, are, that keep like bothering me and I, I look at my mirror and I see myself and so I say, all right, I gotta do better. I gotta work my way out of this problem. And some of us, we, we, uh, we actually take that mirror and we don't like to look at ourselves and our sin and so we turn it to others. And so it might be other people in the church or it might be like culture at large around us. So we turn the mirror to them and we say, see your sin? See your sin? So we see like, we go to church and we see everybody who's messing up all the time or we look at a culture and we read the news, it's really easy, right? That's low hanging fruit. See, everybody's sleeping with everybody, everybody's doing stuff, everybody's stealing, everybody's like greedy. Like you, you never see greed in your own heart, you see greed in other people's heart. And you shine the mirror on them, like wow, look at how sinful 
they are. Look how sinful society is and how it's becoming ever and ever more sinful. Or sometimes we just like to cover the mirror up and we just tolerate sin. I don't like to see it in myself. I don't like to see it in others. So I'm just gonna figuratively cover up the mirrors. And I'm not even gonna think about sin. I'm not even gonna think about what, you're, what you do in your time is fine. As long as you don't say anything to me, then I can live in my deal and I can be just as messed up as I wanna be because I'm not even gonna look at it or think about it. The problem with all three of those methods is that we're pointing the mirror in the wrong direction every time. God doesn't call us to point the mirror to myself and see, oh, I'm kind of messed up here. I need to work on that, but I'm getting better. I'm eating better. I'm whatever. I'm doing that less. I'm doing this less. I'm not talking about people as much. And so I'm looking better in the mirror. And not to turn to other people for to point to them how sinful they are, nor to just to cover it up. But he's called us to point the mirror at God and to see him in his perfection his glory and his beauty and his purity and his righteousness. See, it's easy to tolerate sin in my life and in your life whenever I underestimate the holiness of God. The holiness of God, if I can see it, it will be the cause of my conviction Every time, as I mentioned, every time somebody in Scripture meets God and he shows up on the scene, they fall down and they're immediately aware of their sinfulness. It's sort of like, have you ever, uh, have you ever like realized how dirty your car is? You realize it at the split second before somebody gets in the car with you. You don't usually see it because every day you get in the car, you're just you know, throwing the wrapper over there, you're throwing your bottle over there, or you haven't vacuumed it in literally five years. And, and, you know, and, and suddenly like somebody says, hey, can I ride with you? And you're like, yeah, sure. And in the back of your head, it's like, oh, crap. And then, and then you like, make excuses as they get in the car, like, oh, sorry, I have kids, or blah, blah, blah. You know, I, blah, blah, blah. It's been, been a long time. I, I don't know. I, um, my wife, she drove this car last week, and in that split moment before they get in the car, you suddenly realize, you see it, you're like, this is a filthy, nasty mess. Have you ever like, like moved out of a house or apartment and you have to get it ready for whoever's moving in after you or the landlord to come, and all of a sudden you realize like, how filthy everything is? Like all the marks on the walls you suddenly see and the crumbs at the edges and by, like behind the door where you haven't vacuumed and like you, you look under like the, the refrigerator and you're like, wow, what died in there? And like all of a sudden you realize like we have lived in squalor for years and years and, but you don't see it because you've gotten used to it. You see it every day. Until you have something to compare it to. And you and I will excuse our sin. It will seem like a light, low, easy thing until you compare it to the holiness of God. 
And my prayer this morning is that a, just a, a, a glimmer, a sense of that, of his holiness, of his power and majesty and his purity and his righteousness would, would, would seep into our hearts this morning. Because you and I and us as a community, we have excused sin for far too long. We have viewed it as a too light a thing. We just get in the car, we toss a wrapper, we toss the bottle. We're not paying any attention to our surroundings. Uh, One day I'll clean that up, one day I'll vacuum, one day I'll clean the windows. And we tend to think about our lives the same way. One day... I'll need to stop doing that. One day I'll need to pull the plug on the porn. One day I'll have to stop lusting. One day I'm gonna have to quit uh, arguing with my spouse and viewing them in the way that I view them. One day I'm gonna stop doing this, stop doing that, one day. But that one day never comes until you're faced with a crisis when you meet Jesus, when you meet God and his beauty and his glory and his holiness. The holiness of God is the cause of our conviction. See, what had happened to the church at Corinth is they'd been doing the same thing. They had this idea of either they could, you know, they were getting better, they could work to get better, or they had this sort of idea that, you know, grace, God kind of covers the sin, we're, we're good to go. But they had forgotten the taste and the sense of the, the glory of God's holiness and his beauty. Not only is the holiness of God seeing it and experiencing it the, the cause of our conviction, but the holiness of God is the cure for our idolatry. Have you ever been in love with somebody? And you don't have to raise your hand. Have you ever been in love with somebody and like you break up and it's time to move on? but you can't really, like you say you've moved on, but you haven't really. And so you have those like late night when there's, you're not in like the, the full sense of your faculties, you're sending a text message or you're sh- sh- shooting out a, a voice, voicemail or calling them or you, you're over them, but you're stalking them on Facebook. The, the reason that you can't just get over somebody is that Whenever you have an affection for somebody the only, or something, the only thing that can take that affection away is some, a greater affection that moves it somewhere else. And you and I, the reason if you're a believer today or if you're not a believer, the reason you and I are caught in our sin is because we have a greater affection for that sin than we do for Jesus. And the only way you and I can be freed from that sin is to have our affection turn to a greater affection. I've discovered more and more that I'm like my grandfather. Uh, he gets on these kicks, or he would get on these, I'm sure he still does, and he gets on these kicks where he's like, wakes up one day and he has a hunkering for chocolate chip cookies, and he could eat chocolate chip cookies for every meal of every day until he just gets tired of it, and then he, he gets a new obsession. And I'm sort of like that. One, one day, like, I'll just have, like, a, I, I recently went through a, an obsession with Cholula hot sauce. Anybody know that thing? 
Like one day, I tr- I, I, I've had it before. But one day I had it on something, I'm like, this is amazing. And then I found myself like setting my menu for each meal just so that it would be something that I could put Cholula on. And then, yes, it's awesome. And then like, but then that fascination was eclipsed by, I don't even remember what it was after that. Maybe, I don't remember what it was. Blue cheese dressing, something. I'm like, what can I eat that I put blue cheese dressing on? Is it whatever, I'm trying to find something, any excuse to that. And I can eat that for every single meal. And see, I can't stop myself from loving Cholula. I have to have a new affection that comes in and steals my heart, my affection away from Cholula. In the same way with you and your sin. I don't know what sin it is that you are harboring in your heart. You know that, that corner of your heart where you just kind of keep a a little barrier up and you're like, yeah, yeah, God, I know you're gonna eventually want this. I know this is yours and I'll let you have it, but just, I just gotta protect it for a while. It's that thing that you're thinking about right now that is a greater claim on your affections and your heart and your love than Jesus Christ. And he hasn't called himself to serve us in our wants and needs. He's called us to love him and to serve him according to his wants and needs. According to his commands, not ours. The holiness of God, seeing him and experiencing him is the cure for our idolatry. And then the holiness of God is the reason for the high cost of Calvary. You see, God is so holy, so other than us, that left to our sin, we were undone. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, you are undone before a holy God. Because there's no way you can work yourself, no way you can make yourself good enough, holy enough. His His holiness is a piercing holiness. It is a all-consuming holiness. This is how amazing God is is, how amazing and magnanimous his holiness is, that heaven right now, if you can say right now, is a perpetual party celebrating the holiness of God. And how do we know that? Because every time somebody gets a glimpse in the, in the Bible of heaven, they get a glimpse of people and angels, and seraphim, and cherubim, and amazing creatures that you and I cannot imagine crying out perpetually, continually, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. His holiness is a never-ending fountain of holiness that's amazing and beautiful to behold and look at. This is like a beautiful sunset you don't want to end or a beautiful moment that is just perfect, a beautiful, a wonderful dish that you're tasting that you don't want to end. That is what it is by a million, gabillion to see God in his holiness, in his beauty. And that is why 
the scandal of the cross was necessary. You see, the cross isn't about God making much of you. The cross is about God sacrificing himself for the sake of his glory so that he could draw you to himself. See, God could not stand with sin. And so for you to stand on your own was to end up being consumed but to be covered by the blood of Jesus on your behalf cleanses you. He lays his layer, his blanket of holiness upon you, his robe of holiness upon you to cover your dirty rags. It was a high cost. How can we then look at the cross as something that just covers my sin and makes my sin okay. That's the boasting that Paul's talking about that's not good. The high cost, the, the, the wonder of his holiness, the, my sinfulness and the wonder of the cross should cause me not to say that is okay, that's fuel for my sin. It should cause me to say it came at a great cost. How can I not now die to my sin? That's what Paul was saying whenever he, he says in, in, uh, in verse seven, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. He's saying if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you have been made unleavened by the blood of Christ that covers you, that robe of righteousness, that robe of holiness that covers you. And because you have been made holy, believer, because you've been made holy, then throw out the leaven. You see, the leaven wasn't like yeast. It was this uh, it was sort of fermented dough that you would hold over, and then you would use it in the next batch of dough so the dough would rise, and then you would save a little bit of it and keep it off to the side, then you would use it in the next, and whenever you would take this little batch of fermented dough, this little bit of, uh, uh, little bit of, of uh, leaven, and put it in the new dough, it would spread. And once that you put that leaven in there and you mix it all up, you can never take it back out. There's no stopping it. There's no stopping the leaven. It goes to every part. It, it affects every bit of the dough. There's no stopping it. It affects all of it. The only way to, to get it out is to throw the lump out. And he's saying figuratively that's what we should do with the sin, the leaven in our own hearts, in our lives. We should throw it out because you've been made leavened by the blood of Christ. The holiness of God is the reason for the high cost of Calvary, and the holiness of God is the distinguishing characteristic of the community of believers. And that's what Paul is talking about in this passage. That's why it's so important that they throw the sin out of their lives and out of their midst He's not calling them to legalism. He's calling them to reject the sin, to reject the leaven because they've been made unleavened. Reject the sin because you've been made holy and righteous by the blood of Christ. It doesn't fit who you are anymore. It's like a grown man trying to wear his hat backwards. No offense 
I got to a point where I like realized like I'm a man now. I, there's certain things that don't fit me anymore. I can't dress certain ways. I'm a dad. I can't dress certain ways anymore. I have to change. I have to catch up. If you're a believer in Christ this morning, sin no longer fits who you are. It's easy to tolerate sin when we underestimate the holiness of God. If you're this morning and you're not a believer, what's your reaction to such holiness? Can you see your stance as a non-believer in regard to that holiness and the cost of the Christ of, of the cross and not be torn asunder? For the believer who has tolerated sin in their lives and their heart, you are called to be unleavened because you are unleavened. What sin needs to be expelled from your heart? not to make you holy, but because you've been made holy at a great cost of a holy God. And then for all of us, let us drink deeply of the holiness. Let us eat at the feast of his holiness. That's what he's saying, the festival. Let us eat at the feast of his holiness, a costly, incredible, and now accessible holiness. If you and I were to get a glimpse of his holiness, this morning. It would revolutionize our lives. It would revolutionize our church. It would revolutionize our city. It would revolutionize our world. Because our affections that have been misplaced on lower things would be gathered up in the affection of the one who deserves it all and is worth it all and who never, ever ever ends in his beauty and his glory. Let's pray. Well, as we prepare our hearts for communion, pray that you would, uh, that you would help us. And I pray for uh, every person in this room that we would uh, feel your conviction this morning, that we wouldn't be offended. But God, that we would be convicted of how we have sold you short. We have viewed our lives as being about us. We viewed you as being our servant rather than us as being your servant. We viewed our lives as being um, the purpose of you. You were to make much of our lives, our hearts, rather than our purpose is to make much of you. Bring conviction of that in the name of pray. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Doxa Church. We are so glad that you took the time to join us today. At Doxa, we exist to make disciples who joyfully worship Jesus with their whole lives. We invite you to join us. Doxa Church meets at 10 a.m. every Sunday at River Oaks Elementary School. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org.